0: Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, and with me as always is Galen Stops, P&L's editor. Um, it's been an interesting week, Galen, actually, because we, we do hear a lot of, you know, in our place from, from different sides of the world about, you know, oh, FX is a little bit in decline and, you know, there's no volatility, there's no volume, there's no value there. And yet this week, I think you've written three stories about people investing in FX in the industry.
1: Yeah, so, so there were, there were uh, a number of different stories this week. I mean, I think the, the two that, that I'm kind of particularly interested in is, you know, we wrote about Capitalist raised $40 million, uh, as part yep. of it, as it completed its Series B round of funding, which, you know, for, for a firm like that is, is a sizable amount to be uh, getting. So obviously, you know, the, the people who invested have seen some value there. Um, and then uh, Tick Trade Systems also got investment um, from SVP Financial Group for an undisclosed amount and I, I do think it's interesting because as you said it, um, You know, we keep uh, We keep hearing that, that you know FX is struggling people aren't making profit in the sector And yet we keep seeing this invest in this investment and the other one is obviously I think people saw the news that the market factory has new ownership under ion now um, and we kind of touched on, the, touched on this before a bit when one zero got their investment but you know we keep seeing um you know outside money basically pouring into the space and particularly into kind of technology firms around fx which i think is is interesting considering
0: you know we keep hearing that on the trading side things are tough yeah do you think i mean I, i'm interested i mean because being the cynic that i am i sometimes look at it and think. Obviously, we've been looking, we've been chasing efficiencies in FX for at least ten years, um, probably longer. But it's, and I think it's accelerated even more over the last three to four years, whilst you know, volatility has you know, pretty much hit rock bottom. And and we can't get away from the fact there are um, lower volumes, lower revenues coming through the industry. But do you think that maybe these latecomers in are missing the boat? Because it strikes me that most of the efficiency gains that we can make as an industry, we identified some time ago. And it's not clear to me where we go. From, you know, we've already got five or 10 or 20 firms looking at each particular problem. It's not clear to me where the next level of efficiency comes. I think it's just a question of who can deliver it best. Um, and I get the capitalist thing, because I think capitalist has got a slightly different model. Um, they um, There's credibility in terms of, you know, Gil Mandel's is... As you know, built Triana, and I know it's not a Triana light or anything like that, but it's it's in that space. Um, but I, I do wonder, yeah, you know, they're investing in FX. I think surely the time to do this was three years ago. Am I just being a cynic? Um, I I don't know.
1: I think I think.
0: I mean, in terms
1: of you say it was three years ago. I'm not sure what efficiencies have been built in in the last three
0: years that have actually made a difference and mean people have, have missed the boat so to speak um, I think well I mean I think, I think what I would say is I mean if you look at clearing for instance I think we are we, I think we agree that we're on the cusp of clearing taking another big step forward in FX and that is going to be a huge efficiency for everyone and I'm wondering then what we need around that
1: so yeah I, I do think that's going to be a big piece I think I think we are kind of at a point where clearing to become a much more prevalent part of the fx market but i still think it's going to take a while right because you know as it does for right now you have you know interdealer NDFs, a bit of client NDFs, and some options trading forwards is obviously as we've discussed at the next big frontier and that will make a huge difference but I, i don't think i don't know if the forwards piece even makes sense uh from an economics perspective until the options piece is cleared out more or at least until there's more flow going in in general so i think on oh, the clearing side, I do I do think that a big change is coming, but I think it's going to be,
0: you know, incremental progress. Yeah. Um, but then I think, but that's my point because I think what I'm I think what I'm trying to say in my usually inarticulate manner, is that I think most of the um, tasks we have in terms of building the next level of efficiency into the market, these projects are already underway. Yeah, like the clearing piece underway. I, I totally accept your point. There's no, we are not, we are nowhere near completion of most of this stuff. But most of the projects are underway. Yeah, we have several connectivity solutions. We have several, you know, like people looking at connecting up to this venue because it's like you know half a millisecond quicker and so on. But it's all work in progress. So someone starting, I guess my question is, someone's starting now, a big project now, is that going to be too late? Because it seems to me it would be. And, you know, I mean, again, capitalists, they're investing in a project underway. But some of the others, you're at, well, what are they actually going to do that's actually going to change things? Or are they just investing in FX because they think it's, you know, they think it's a growth business?
1: Yeah, so uh, the... It, it's interesting, because I mean, for example, I'm not, I'm not, it's not entirely clear to me, right, what, what specific interest, for example, someone like Ion has in FX. Now, I'm sure that they have their, their reasons for investing in it, but they have a big collection of different businesses and, and fintech firms. I'm not sure yeah. where Market Factory fits in with that. I, I assume is it just going to be seen as a standalone? Um, it's not really clear to me. Um, obviously, you know, the, like the other two firms are kind of will stay, they're not kind of losing ownership, they're just getting funding. Um, yeah. the, the, the tick trade one. That's slightly different, again, because it's, it's an investment by and a relationship with, right, where they're actually, you know, they're providing services to Silicon Valley Bank, and it's the parent company of that that's making investment in it. So obviously, you know, they're yeah. providing specific value to that bank through this partnership, and the bank appreciates it so much that they actually think that it's worth investing in the firm more broadly. Um, and obviously, you know, capitalis is a different model altogether where it's kind of more of a, a traditional you know, VC funding round. Um, yeah. I do think it will be interesting with each, each deal is very different. Um, and it'll be interesting to see yeah. what comes of this. One thing I do think is funny. We talked a while ago, right? About, uh, I think it was from a conversation I had with uh, a trading firm where they were talking about the, the people trading on the platforms and making less money trading FX from the platforms now. And uh, Now, you know, do we see basically a, a weird inverse where actually kind of, you know, the technology providers or the data providers, then there's the platforms, then there's people trading. You know, is it basically the people who are making this
0: market are making less money now than the people who support it? I think we're probably close to that sort of level. The only thing, it depends on who you're talking about because obviously it's difficult to work out how much, for instance, a bank. If you take someone like a city or an HSBC that have foreign exchange operations all around the world and literally all around the world, it's difficult yeah. to work out how much money they make out of actual trading than they do, you know, for instance, you know, the, the Mexico franchise to City is worth, is worth you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars probably. Um, so it's yeah, difficult yeah. to work out exactly how much they're making on that one. Um, I, mean, I would say that I think um, there's a pushback coming. What I found interesting about this, you know, these three announcements this week is actually they're all investing in different parts of the FX cycle. Yeah, you know, you're looking at one that's looking at you know, building aggregation and a pricing engine, a smarter pricing engine. Another one's looking at the connectivity around venues. And I think that's an interesting one because obviously this investment comes at a time when City has gone public. So, well, they haven't gone public, but a lot. Of, I think they would have refuted the, uh, the story had it been untrue around the time when City and other banks are looking to cut the number of platforms they connect to. So that's an interesting timing on that one. And the other one is the post-trade piece you know, looking at innovations, looking at, you know, smart management of capital. So they've invested around the whole FX trade cycle, which I think is quite interesting in its own way, because, you know, to your point, we expect if they're building efficiencies in, that's fine. But normally you look at that being in the post-trade piece and nowhere else. So to your point on the who's making the money, I suspect that we are at a situation where, aside from the client franchise the suppliers and the infrastructure suppliers are making more money than the traders and i think that's why i i mean the question i'll put to you is i mean you look at what's been happening with the banks over the last year and then it's accelerated over the last few months um i think provoked by city i have to say um i wonder whether the banks are now looking at this the investment coming and going, actually we need a piece of this yeah we either need do to think- invest in this yeah so do so you,
1: you think the banks could start making deals?
0: Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, there was a report this week about, you know, the banks looking to create, um, a, like, a utility or a consortium to um, develop a connectivity solution for fixed income, and that would be in competition with ION. And, again, that might feed into why they're, you know, if ION gets word of this and ION goes, mm, okay, run under threat, let's try and broaden our, our portfolio by having some foreign exchange in our portfolio, um, that might, they might all play into it but I just think when you get reports like that and you, and you see the banks saying oh yeah we're going to cut the number of platforms that we connect to and we're going to be a lot more picky about who we price and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're challenging the, the, the cost proposition of maintaining these PB clients when these things are happening that generally speaking is a sign to me that the banks are saying yeah we kind of lost control of this because if you look at it from a data perspective you know, I, I, I don't know what a, an average bank or you know, non-bank firm's data bill would be. I would imagine it would be pretty steep, not because the data is massively expensive, but it's because of how much they consume. Um, what are they really doing? Generally speaking, apart from probably 10% of the franchise in the bigger banks, they're basically buying their own data. This, they're just paying to buy their own data back it might be cleansed and it will be i guess it will be justified by other players but if you come back to the fact that you know probably most fx pricing starts with you know a price from someone with a, with an interest well effectively everything else is being recycled from there onwards so we're paying all this money for data if I'm sitting in a bank, I'm looking at saying, well, I'm paying all this money for data, and most of it is my data. And if I look at my internal data set and the data set I get from all these other providers, which I aggregate and clean, there's next to no difference. So why am I paying hundreds of millions of dollars a year in data costs? Why don't I, if I'm, a, if I'm sitting in a strategic initiative division of a bank, why am I not looking at it saying either let's own a piece of this or let's develop our own one? Because you know, okay. again, it's, go on. You talking about kind of mentioned
1: consortiums. I mean, do you think that uh, post scandals, the banks have it in them—the the ability or the willingness in FX to, to come together and, and
0: collaborate on something? Um, I think they do because I don't think it's actually an FX issue. This is this will be what happens on the um, on the strategic in, um, investment side where who haven't been touched by this. Um, I think, you know, it will be put together. If you look at it, you know, the banks put together EBS, the banks put together FXO, um, the banks put together C L S and they did a really good job of that. They put in good you know, they put in good strong management, a good strong structure, and they let people run the business. But they owned it and they were on the board. And obviously it was the case of C L S they remain so. So I think if you look at it, generally speaking Bank led initiatives, and I'm, I'm using the word bank, but this could involve your XTXs or your jumps or your virtues as well, as, you know, as vested interest in the market making business. Um, but banks would look at it and go, well, that model has worked for us before. And not only did it work well, you know, people would turn around and say, well, maybe the market was in a slightly better place then, but also, um, it gave them a good return on investment. Why yeah, you know, why are they going to sit there and let a lot of bunch of VCs take take the money? But those initiatives you mentioned, uh, how, how long ago were they begun? Oh, one was, yeah, one was 30 or well, 28 years, and the other one was you know, 20 years. CLS was well, probably 40 or 50 years, but it took them 20 to get the thing done. But I, I, I mean, I'm sure there are other instances out there that I can't think off the top of my head at 8.30 in the morning. But yeah, I, just, I don't think the world's changed that much in terms of a good business idea is a good business idea. And if I'm sitting there paying millions of dollars for data that, gen- generally speaking, I generate, then why would I not want a piece of that action? And why would I not invest? Either invest in, a, in an existing business. The problem there becomes, and, and I guess to your question, why, why would they? I don't think they would invest in an individual business basis because we saw this with well, Lava when City invested in Lava FX. All the banks went, well, I'm not going to use Lava FX because it's owned by City. You know, there yeah, there are still reservations out there about State Street's ownership of Currenex. Um, and to a degree... And, and, yes, and best, best X. X. Yeah. And best X. So you've got these things. But if you do it as a group with a clear corporate structure, with the appropriate measures in place, there's been, no, there's been no suggestion of malpractice in foreign exchange around the business structure of anything set up by the banks. What has happened has happened between individuals due to a cultural problem at trading desk or trading business level. What I'm talking about is way above that. I'm talking about the strategic initiatives guys who are sitting and going, okay, I've got this wad of money here I'm sitting on, I've got cash on the hip, where am I gonna spend it? Um, to me, it, it makes sense for them to turn around and say, okay, you know what, we want something in the connectivity space or something. we in fixed income because that is gonna become a big issue. I mean, I, I did an interview last year with Steve Toland, who's the founder of Transfic, and he's looking at this issue. And he spent you know, five, ten minutes to start explaining to me the complexity of fixed income. I and mean, if you think foreign exchange is complex, the fixed income world is absolutely insane because you've got something like 400 venues, some of which are dedicated to one product, some of which are dedicated to everything. Some of them are going to be very high-frequency trading. Others are trading once a day. But everyone wants all the efficiencies out of it, and they want to connect to these things for that one trade a day or to get the data from that one trade a day, um, that to me becomes, you know, (laughs) it becomes the FX problem multiplied by 10. So maybe looking at fixed income in this space, like in in terms of an ion replacement or a competitor, because then we are kind of beholden to the incumbent, and that's always a worry for anyone in the market. um, Let's see what we can do with our own. We'll see. I mean, it's.
1: I, 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 it's I, I'm, I remain deeply skeptical that we're going to see anything like that. Mm. Personally. I, I just. And maybe, maybe as you say, I'm, I'm talking to the FX groups and not the strategic groups. But
0: my, I haven't got the sense that like there's anything like that on the radar right now for an appetite. Oh, no, no. I, 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 I think you're probably. I think there's a few initiatives being discussed. You know, I continue to hear about um, a group of banks getting together to create yet another multi-dealer platform. And I think they're doing it because they're looking... And again, they're looking at the cost of trading. This comes back to your original point. Are the people providing the infrastructure making more money than the traders? Um, so they're looking at it going, well, let's maybe take it back. Let's dial it back to what we used to do. So I, think, I, I do think these discussions are taking place. Whether they'll happen or not is the interesting point, and I and I, I kind of accept your argument on that one, um, but yeah, I just there's something there's something nagging away at me saying it makes sense to do this, so why wouldn't you do it? It's just a, you know, to me it's just an it's, to me it's it's a no brainer to at least investigate it. So there, <laughs> you remain skeptical. I remain open to the possibility. How did we turn around? How did we turn around that one around where well, you became the cynic? I know, I know. I know. <laughs> moving on, um, this week, I mean, actually, I guess moving on on the subject of data, um, we published a piece, a, a viewpoint from 360T, around um, data in FX swaps, which I found quite interesting. Um, to me, this sort of, I think what the points being made were eminently sensible, and I think you know, it's. Uh, it's definitely a question of you know, we do need better data in swaps, and it will help the market evolve. My question would be around I don't think we need to get to a place where we're relying upon these, this data for best execution because of the challenges around, okay, what's, you know, what's, what, what spread have I got to put on for the credit counterparty risk? What, you know, this doesn't actually help my market risk position. This trade isn't being cleared. Um, you know, whereas this trade is being cleared, my risk weighted average, you know, is actually going to be benefited from this trade, so I can actually trade slightly off mid. It's all things like that. I think are the are the, the challenges around it, but I do like the idea of actually having a data source so everyone knows where you know three months Dollar Swiss is. What's your thoughts? On that? Yeah,
1: I, I think I think I think look, the fundamental point being made in the article is a good one, right? Which is you know how many. We've had this conversation before, right? Look at all our panel sessions now; it's all, you know, data-driven. You know, I talk to so many people at, at banks who say, you know, they go to see clients now and they bring their data specialist with them, right? We have yeah. data scientists at, on the, both the buy and sell side, right? So, so the, the future of, of trading investment, I, I agree with that premise. It will be increasingly data-driven, right? Um, yeah. And and so I think the, the swaps market has lagged behind um spot effect from that regards um how long will it take to to change and become more data different i don't know but i think ultimately the direction of travel is one way right which is it will slowly slowly yeah. or quickly kicking and screaming or smoothly um it, it will start to become a more uh data-driven trading environment uh and and so, kind of, yeah, I, I agree with the premise. I, I agree with you. There are still challenges and there's limitations on how much data is going to, certain data types are going to be useful
0: in that market compared to spot. But I think that the overall point is is a valid one, they said. Yeah. I, I suppose the thing is also you can – with you know, given data and, and given the ability to transmit information, it's probably not a huge leap if a client's looking at their best X for a swap trade – To use an independent mid here, and then say okay, and then the LP has to say, well, yeah, but that's fine. But you traded off mid because of you know this this amount for the for the risk capital allocated, this amount for counterparty risk, this amount because we didn't clear. You can probably it's it's a bit like they're doing in um, under MiFID with equities and stuff like that. You unbundle the trade. You say okay, you've dealt with mid, but here's all the other excuse me, here's all the other stuff that you've got to take into account when we're actually looking at um, your, your final price. I, I don't suppose it's a, a difficult thing to be able to do that. Um, and I guess this, is actually, this, could, this could be an interesting hedge against, just to loop back to what we were talking about before, if you do get a situation where the banking industry decides, actually, you know what, we should look at something around the data space so we're not paying for our own data, that would very much be a spot thing at this moment in time. So this could be a very good hedge against such a thing. And I kind of get the feeling 360T are, are putting their push into the swaps piece. Full stop. You know, they've always been the swaps-heavy platform in terms of yeah. turnover. I suspect that this is just the latest situation in trying to establish themselves and, and maybe usurp Refinitiv as the swaps platform.
1: You say that, but I mean, is is that the smart money focusing on swaps? Given what we've seen in the latest BIS numbers, that that is kind of
0: Seemingly, the growth market in FX. The challenge, I think, is going to be that there's a lot of people looking at it. So, yes, I think I think it's I think it's a smart move, and I kind of instinctively think they might have a small lead outside of Affinitive in terms of the initiatives. Yeah, you know, I mean, EBS we keep on hearing about doing something, you know, hotspot and so on, but I don't see anyone really making the advances at 360TR. So, yes, I think it's a smart move. The challenge will be getting it done quick enough so they can establish. I think this is where you need that. So it's not going to be first move advantage. Crucial definitely owns that. But I think if you look at this as a second wave of um, evolution, being at the forefront of that will actually get you somewhere, especially if they can tap it into the clearing piece as well. You know, it's significant that Eurex has suddenly started making noise about the... Um, the clearing efforts that they're making and they're they're clearing this trade and that trade. Um, I think it's a smart move. I think it will be a question of can they execute it efficiently enough, um, quickly enough, and before competition really starts to buy it. And I guess the other point which we can't ignore with this is what their price point will be. Because clearly... Everyone in the world, in the forex, in the foreign exchange world now is obsessed with price points and, and costs and what it's, going, you know, what it's going to cost me to do X, Y, Z. Um, I yeah. think they need to be able to develop this and make sure it's not going to, it's going to have to be competitively priced. Because, um, yeah, I mean, this is, you could argue this is going to keep Refinitiv honest, but although Refinitiv stuff is mainly short end, which I think 360Ts will inevitably be as well, where the brokerage isn't as high. But, yeah, it's got to be priced at the appropriate point, I think. And if you can clear, again, that's another price, That's another price, isn't it? If you turn and say, okay, this trade's going to be cleared through Euro-X, for instance, well, okay, that's the brokerage is going to be X for the whole thing, which should, which should be a, an efficiency gain. So, yeah, all in all, I think it's a sensible move. Um, and, frankly, I think it's a, it's a more sensible move than trying to get into some of like NDFs and options, yeah, you know, we've got yeah. the world and his dog trying to get in, trying to get into NDS at the moment. Well, yeah, <laughs> I know it's a growth market, but there's only so much in it. Yeah, you know, you're 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 fighting over probably, you know, I don't know what ten billion dollars outside the one month of volume. Make call yeah. it thirty billion a day. It doesn't matter. This is a lot different to fighting over the two trillion that probably would be available for electronic trading in swaps. Yeah, so, yeah. So you only,
1: you, you, only, you only have to grab a small slice of that swaps
0: pie. For it to be bigger than grabbing a, a big slice of the NDF. Yes, exactly. I, mean, I know the brokerage is higher in NDFs, but do we really think the brokerage is going to stay high in NDFs once the competition really starts to buy it? It's, you know, we're going to end up with people saying, okay, well, my price is X. Oh, in that case, my price is X. You know, once they get a little bit of liquidity on the platform, then, then they can challenge the incumbent by, by cutting fees. Um, and we end up in, in a brokerage world that ends up with NDF pricing being very, very similar to, you know, G5. So, yeah, I I, I think it's a sensible move. Um, It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The only caveat I have to this whole last 10 minutes of conversation is Uh um, (laughs) I think I kind of started writing about this in 2004 going like, this makes absolutely all the sense in the world. Why is it not happening? It will happen soon. And 15 years later, I'm still waiting. (laughs) So, you know... (laughs) never underestimate how slowly these things can move <laughs> yeah although I do think there's there's enough impetus behind it now to be honest so basically we should be reading your columns you complete... now for gonna, we be
1: reading your columns now for what people are going to be looking at in 15 years time <laughs> yes
0: oh uh, dear hopefully I'll be looking at the beach <laughs> and we'll take we'll leave we'll, we'll, we'll leave that conversation there um, <laughs> and one other thing one one other thing I wanted to ask you, actually, um, on this, which I thought was quite interesting, and we're still on the data thing, I think, but there was a report this week that the hedge fund 2 Sigma is selling its um, software um, solution, I think it's called Venn, which basically analyzes clients' position and you know, I think the press release says something along the lines of yeah," and, and, and helps them decide, decide the best risk management strategy for you know, going forward. Um, and they're going to sell this to the public, it was dressed up as, oh, it's our software solution and we're doing this and this can be available to anyone that wants it. And I was looking at it thinking, I don't know if you saw the story, but I was looking at it thinking, isn't this just someone trying to sell their data? It just seems to me like, well, here we go, here's our data. We're analyzing our client positions. Well, yeah, that's analyzing data. And so, again, are they, are, if got, selling, are they selling the data or the analytics tools to, to analyze it? They're selling the software solution, the analytical tool. But what wasn't clear to me was whether they're actually selling. Part of that comes if it's their client data, or if they're turning around and saying, "Here's a solution. You put your own data in, and then you can use it to analyse, and it comes up." So it's like a trading strategy thing based upon data. Now, yeah. that I guess is the key: is it going to be their is it going to be their data from their clients' you know viewpoints, or is it going to be someone else's? It's uh, I, again, it's another, another instance to me where you've got people looking at it going, we've got valuable data inside this firm, let's monetize it. And I go yeah. back to my point earlier about if I'm a bank, I'm sitting again going, I've got all this data in this thing, let me monetize it. And I know at the moment they're trying to monetize it by selling their algo products. And they say, I can earn brokerage from someone using my algo when they've decided what algo to use, thanks to my pre-trade analytics, which is my data, which I'm effectively selling in that fee. Um, but, I, again, I think it's another instance where we're going to have people saying, maybe, um you know, we own this data. Why are we not monetizing it? So we'll see. Um, I wanted to close out this week by telling you that um, I know you'll be deeply, deeply upset by this, but I've been getting uh-huh. a bit of stick. <laughs> Goodness no. I know you. I know you're going to be quick to defend me on this, but you know, and, and to have sympathy for me. But I have been getting from stick, some stick from the readership this week. Um, it's actually, a, I mean, it's a serious point, I guess. But you know, um I got more than a few messages this week saying like, "You've been very noisy about Mark Johnson," and I have. I grant that. I even wrote about it on Monday, in terms of you know, like why I think there should be another hearing or whatever. But you've been totally silent on. Um, uh, Ashkay Iyer, the JP Morgan trader, who's just been found guilty uh, Thursday in New York. I I had noticed a difference uh there. Yeah. Yeah. um, Well, it's a difficult one to really say, but I don't see them as being the same same situation whatsoever. I'm looking at one, and this is a controversial thing to say, I know, but I still... I'm a little bit bewildered as to how the so-called cartel members got off. Because I'm looking at that going, well, we know they got off because everyone was doing it. And this is interesting. So they got off because everyone was doing it. And yet in the same, probably the same courtroom or same courthouse, this guy who was doing the same thing was sharing information uh, has been found guilty. It just reinforces to me how lucky they were. And and, I know um, there's a court case going on at the moment over an unfair dismissal um in new york i'd be very wary about going to new york if i was a plaintiff at this moment in time um but no i do see it as being totally different because i look at this one and, and you know um, i was convicted to a great degree on the evidence of two of his co-conspirators who had already pleaded guilty in return for um a lenient more lenient sentencing so effectively, they've turned, like, you know, they've, I think they call it turning Queen's evidence over in, in the UK. Um, so he's been convicted. with well, they're saying, no, actually, our, you know, our intention was to um, share this information, make the customers think that we were competing for this business, and the whole time just fix the market so that, therefore, we wouldn't lose money and we can make money by sharing the information. But sharing information is just wrong. I just totally don't get why anyone thinks it was a good idea at any time whatsoever. And I know it's not the individual traders thought this is stuff that they were told to do by their senior management, which I think is where the real fault lies, but it's wrong. What Mark Johnson was doing was totally different. That was kept within HSBC. And, it, and they are two di- totally different cases. But, so in answer to my critics, um, the reason I have it a lot more quiet than <laughs> this one is because I, 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 I don't find I have that much to take issue with over the way the case was handled and the case put by the DOJ. I do have serious issues with how the case was put in the other case. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does sort of highlight the vagaries and the chance you take with all these things, isn't it, when you've got one court saying, yeah, you can walk because everyone was doing it, and then someone else who was doing it suddenly finds himself facing up to 10 years in jail. That's quite serious. Um, so, yeah. There's a glo- There's a gloomy note to end on, isn't it? Yeah, I know. But there you go. We will in there. We'll be back next. Um, will we be back next week? It's Thanksgiving week. Oh, it is a Thanksgiving again. Do you want? Do you want to record a podcast on Thanksgiving? <laughs> it's, tempting, <laughs> it's tempting, mate. mate. I might. I suspect, might be suspect a little busy. I suspect we'll be back in two weeks' time then. <laughs> so, so our um, to our American listeners, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Um, to the rest of you. Happy week, and yeah, we'll return in uh, two weeks' time with the next podcast. Thanks very much for listening.